Hey folks, we're excited to let you know that our Patreon account is finally live. If you like the podcast, our Archeo Gaming videos, or general content, please consider subscribing to our account. We love creating Ancient World content, and we are so close to making our first merchandise items available for purchase. But in order to be able to accomplish our goals, we need a little help. We'd be so grateful for the support, and we have some exciting Patreon-exclusive content coming soon. You can find us at www.patreon.com at the Ozymandias Project. So thanks again for sticking with us and listening to our show. Please enjoy the following episode. Hello! Welcome to another episode of Ancient Office Hours by the Ozymandias Project. Trireme Transit is now boarding for all new and returning passengers. Now departing, present ponderings. Next stop is Ancient Office Hours at a library lost in the sands of time. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 21 of the podcast. This is a really fun week because my guest is Derek L., host of the Hellenistic Age podcast. I so seldom get to speak with other ancient world podcasters, so it was a real treat to be able to have a conversation with someone who is familiar with what I do on a weekly basis. This was a lovely experience to be able to sit down and talk a little shop about our experiences podcasting using ancient source materials. I was pleasantly surprised to learn that Derek's background is not in classics, so I was able to ask him about his passion for making the ancient world more accessible as someone outside the field. I also asked him about the importance of his role in helping save the ancient studies. If you haven't heard of his show, I highly recommend giving it a listen, because the Hellenistic Age is such a long period of time that schools, unfortunately, are usually forced to skip teaching it. As you'll see in this episode, that's really a shame because it is a hugely fascinating time in history that most people know woefully little about. Enjoy the episode, and I'll see you all next week. Thanks for joining me this morning, Derek. Uh, pretty excited for this, I will say. Discovered your podcast uh, quite a while ago, and then I've listened to it, and I've just been like, yeah, this is this is pretty awesome. So I was like, once I started mine, I was like, yeah. I'd like to have the dude on. Seems pretty chill. And the congratulations for getting over the initial hump where you have those. Uh, you're, you're, I'm recording on you know GarageBand with an iPhone microphone. And at that point, it's like it's pretty, uh, pretty pirate radio esque. So I um, appreciate you having me on. It's a, uh, it's a great privilege to be. I mean, just having being in that same position as you were, where you know I'm like idolizing people like you know Mike Duncan or Dan Carlin, you know, and, and name your stock figures. I can totally imagine being in that seat that you are right now. So it looks like you're on good track though. Yeah, well hopefully people keep taking an interest and keep wanting to engage with me. Um I think that there's always a space for ancient history lovers, which is also why I was like, well, there's people who love this stuff, but luckily, thankfully, there's not like too many ancient history and classics type podcasts because then if there were just so many i'm like well then good luck breaking in <laughs> yeah that's the thing where it's you're trying to find that niche where you know i think that some people if you try to go into it where you know i, I sometimes get people asking me it's like yeah i'm thinking about starting my own history show like i'm trying to think of subjects where you know i think if you introduce your own take to it you can certainly break in any ways but I think that certain topics, like they've kind of seen the, like they face the brunt of it, like trying to start up a history of Rome podcast only, 
you're probably going to have a harder time just by virtue of the fact there's been so many that have cropped up, never mind the big name people will call them. And I think that there are a lot of places in history then, like, you know, even ver- like perspectives going about it where you can kind of break that mold and, you know, try to find a special audience for that. So I think that, you know, that was part of what my aim was for starting the show. And thankfully, as, as I've kind of gone through the motions here i've seen a lot of people doing uh similar or even like just completely different things that i would ever consider so i mean i'm happy to see that and make brings a brings everything to a wider audience which is great yeah for sure and this is i mean just in terms of breaking into the history part of podcasting is definitely something i want to get into since we've obviously both done it but i want to just take a really quick step back and just get into a little bit about yourself, like a little bit of your background. Like, I don't believe that you were a classics major. So, you know, how did you go from not really being in this world to then suddenly being like, I'm going to do a whole podcast on the Hellenistic age? Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting question I ask myself sometimes when I see the bills I've racked up and, you know, buying all these books and, you know, uh, but I find that uh, as even as a kid, I still always like history to some extent. I think one of the, I'm not sure, you, I can't remember exactly what, what avenue I broke through, but I think around the same time as I got into, uh, you know, ancient Rome and Greece and through, there was a couple books like, uh, they were like called DK eyewitness books. And uh, they had, they were these large books with really big, uh, large color photos. And they had like gladiators and Pompeii. And that just, it just seems so interesting to me. Um, and also being like a young a kid where you have the time where like 300 movies like that, even though they have their problems, you're, when you're a kid, when you watch something like 300, you just can't help but really getting excited about it or Gladiator. Um, but uh, when I got older, I don't think I really delved too deep into ancient. Oh, and also uh, when I I was also into big mythology guy. So like the uh, one the big book for me was uh, D.O. Lair's Book of Greek Myths, um, a couple of other variations of that. And I, I, would, I would love to find them, find them nowadays. But those two really were kind of like the starting points for ancient history and, you know, Greece, Rome and uh, everything in between altogether. Uh, not until I got to about university where you know, I was never into going into do history. I was originally a biology major when I graduated with my undergraduate in biology. Um, but uh, the first real instance where I got involved in the classics was I took an ancient Roman intro to ancient Roman culture course at the uh, University of Manitoba. And a professor there, Dr. Robert Now, who is an amazing professor. So, you know, highly, you know, if, you, if anyone's in the University of Manitoba, I highly encourage you to take his courses. They're amazing. Uh, he, he just introduced me to a way where it broadened my perspective on what we perceive uh, ancient societies to be like, you know, the general standard mindset. It's like, you know, oh, gladiators, legions, uh, that sort of thing. But just delving more into that period, I just, you know, threw myself into ancient history. I started looking, reach, or, you know, reading like uh, Tacitus unsuccessfully because he was super, super hard, uh, Suetonius and stuff. But, and then, that, but kind of tying it to podcasting though. I've always been listening to podcasts since I was maybe 13, 12. Uh, I, but when I was in my undergraduate, after taking my ancient history course, uh, I actually stumbled upon Mike Duncan's History of Rome, which is like in every, which is the stock standard. You're like, I'm almost ever guaranteeing every history podcast is like, yeah, I heard Mike Duncan's History of Rome. I thought maybe I could do that for this. But it took a few years because I did. I listened to several courses and eventually I was driving home. I, I, I lived in, I still live in Northern Illinois and it's like a 14 hour drive from my university and i'm thinking like i'm listening to lectures i'm like 
I wonder if there's something I could do like this. You know, I think I could, what would be a topic? And I really loved Alexander the Great. That was one of my recent things I was really getting into. And I've read quite a bit of them over the last few years. And I was kind of formally in my head, like, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, I could do this, you know, maybe 10 episodes. And I have no idea how to record anything, but let's try it from there. And then that point, when I got home the next day, after I, like, I slept until like 1030, I, uh, I got up and I just decided to write out a script and, you know, put it up to put it in audio. And then I sent a couple of my friends. I'm like, well, hey, what do you what do you think of this? I guess I kind of moved from Alexander the Great to the Hellenistic period because I knew so little about it. With the Hellenistic period, it's kind of skipped over in general, you know, in your basic education. Like I didn't even learn about Alexander in my, in anything before college. It was all uh, ancient Roman Greece. You kind of go from classical Greece uh, and then you skip to Julius Caesar. Basically, you skip about 300 years. And uh, after that, it just, you know, bits of medieval period. But the Hellenistic period was something I had only understood the periphery of through my exposure by reading Roman history books through Livy. You know, from my, my perspective was like, oh, they're just Greek kings in like Asia and Egypt. And like, that's weird. But I never took enough consideration to trying to see what to do with them because I didn't really know what to go like where to start with and thankfully that's changed in the last few years but for uh podcasting i was like well maybe there's something to this so i kind of just you know, you know put it all together thought hey i can set something up and that's uh where i am today almost uh three years later and uh i'm glad I, i've had some hiccups here and there but uh i'm glad that it's proceeding along and uh I can only imagine, I'm, I'm kind of dreading the future when I'm seeing it's like, oh God, everything's getting so much more complicated, but um, I, I'm still, I'm still uh, happy that people are listening and finding some sort of enjoyment out of it. Even for people who are, you know, in the classics, like I'm not remotely, I'm, I'm a bit of a Philistine. I just like to read a lot. And that's basically the extent of my research. Yeah, that's awesome though. I mean, I love hearing when people who are not in classics when they decide to pick up something classical and then do something great with it um for sure for sure i wish more people outside the field would do that because then it would just help grow us and and help show that you don't have to have a background in it or be connected to it in some way to be able to get into it and i do i want to point out that it's very interesting that you made the deliberate choice to pick a subject a topic that you did not feel you knew very well because I think that's like the opposite of most podcasters right I mean you're gonna sit here and be like well if I'm gonna say something or produce something and put it out to the world I'm, I'm probably gonna do it on something that I'm pretty well versed in where all the research that goes into it is just sort of reviewing what you already knew and figuring out how to to put that in the context of what you're trying to do so uh, I definitely want to applaud the fact that you're just like you know no don't know much about this i'm just gonna do it anyway was that was that scary at, at all or were you just like the whole time no it's okay i'll just read a bunch of books i'll do all the research and i'll be fine you know it was at first like there was a few points where uh i mean alexander like it was kind of a cheat way to choose the hellenistic period because i'd be like well i could start off with alexander the great i know a lot about his life and his career and it was a good testing ground for like finding out what works what doesn't work and of course everything's still a work in progress uh, but i think that once i pat get stopped or started to get towards the end um i got started the panic a little bit where i'm like oh my God, what happens after this? Like, how am I, I mean, considering that I, my scope and ambition is to cover 
everybody, not just focus on like one nation, region or state. It's like you're dealing with things going from like Spain to the Hindu Kush in India. Like I'm thinking, how the hell am I going to get this to like sound remotely coherent? And, you know, in some ways, I'm still kind of doing it to this day where I'm, I'm kind of thinking only a couple episodes ahead where it's like, well, this would work more if I find like I'll read something and think like, well, yeah, I could do one episode on this. But then I read something else entirely. I'm like, oh, my God, OK, I got to like expand on this. I got to put this in different order. And I think that's part of the experience is just some people like that, you know, like they, if they know a lot about their particular topic of history, like you mentioned, then they're more comfortable. They can uh, structure it easier and uh, make it a little bit more coherent. And I think that I've tried my best to keep it from wandering too much and try to keep a certain thematic uh repetition with it where these three episodes will be about this area these next ones in this area and kind of trying to find natural bookmarks to everything and that's been the most challenging and it's actually going to get a little bit worse where everything's becoming so interconnected where I like to have everything spaced out. It's like, I'm talking about the perspective of the Ptolemies in Egypt. Now I'm talking about the Seleucids, but then at certain points, it's like those two narratives are so interwoven. Like I fear that I'm going to just repeat an entire episode on its own. And so I have to find different ways to cope with that or try to like, you know, say for example, uh, the period between like 220 and 186 BC, where you have the Seleucid empire fighting the Ptolemies, the Antigonids fighting with Rome, Rome fighting with Carthage, and you're just trying to find a way to naturally make everything work together without sounding disjointed or uh, sounding uh, like just like it's just a repetitious. And I think that's been the biggest challenge. And where I find, I think the I think my benefit is that I'm, I just kind of set a uh, artificial cap on like what I expect myself to do every month. Where it's like I release an episode about you know every month or so or twice a month. Versus people that crank them out like every week, which is not feasible for me whatsoever. I'm like, I can't read enough. I can't, I'm not well known, well versed enough in this to actually pump that out or do anything like that. So it was, it was a bit of a, a bit scary, but you know, now it's gotten easier where I'm like, okay, I've got now, I mean, especially when you read books and then you go back to your episodes, it's like, why the hell did I not talk about this? <laughs> so, uh, but that's, I think you're, you're absolutely right. It was pretty frightening, but I don't think that should act as a deterrent. I think that actually makes it a bit more like triumphant in the end where you're like, yes, it actually came out coherently this time. For sure. For sure. Oh my goodness. I mean, if I were brave enough and felt that I had the time, I probably would have liked to also be able to incorporate things that I just know nothing about because I enjoy the research, but in this day and age, I was like, no, I should probably just stick to like ad hockey things that just come to me whenever, whatever I feel like. So, yeah, I mean, definitely a completely different approach, but I, I, I think it's great. And I think that maybe sometime very far in the future, I'll get to a nice place where I feel I could sort of sit down and say, okay, what, what do I not know anything about? What can I maybe do some research and then try to incorporate this a little more? Because I, I did start my podcast being very classical themed and, and classics heavy, but that's only because that's where my background is. Hmm. Uh, I've always said this is more a project of all of the ancient studies. So eventually I'd like people who are in Old Norse studies or Mesoamerica or uh, Asia or Africa, I don't know, uh, all over. But I, I don't feel I know enough on many of those places to even be able to sort of hold a halfway intelligent conversation with a scholar who just knows so much about these places. So eventually I hope it'll expand, but 
when you made the deliberate choice to go with the Hellenistic Age, technically, like the Hellenistic Age, it has a starting and an end point. So how do you deal with feeling like you're kind of capped in a way where you can't just go on indefinitely, indefinitely? I mean, sure, you can stretch things and do multiple episodes for a certain episode of history. But how do you deal with knowing like at some point the Hellenistic Age does end? I think that actually it gives me a renewed sense of relief where, uh, I mean, there's people that are more ambitious than I where like uh, they're covering, you know, a lot of these, say, for example, the history of X, like these certain nations and states, they're going up to the present day. They're starting from like prehistory or even before that to now, whereas I have this like knowledge where it's like, okay, I have an end goal. And I can meet that eventually. And then it prevents me from ever, because I, I, I don't want to be doing this like constantly. I, I was Eventually I want to move on to different projects, maybe write a book. I don't know. But doing something like this is where I have a starting point and an ending point. It gave me a better sense of the, under, like a structure of where I want to proceed with. And I think that the Hellenistic period, I mean, there's always debates like, you know, when did it exactly end? What do we count? Like, I'm just going to go with the straight orthodoxy of let's just cut it off at Cleopatra's death and call it a day. I mean, there does, I mean, there's going to be a few episodes where I'm like going past that day where it's like, yeah, it's technically, technically, I call it where it's like, yeah, there's people that are beyond that. And do we really do, are we going to consider the Romans to be Hellenistic or not? And that's going to be something that's going to be at the end of my cycle here. But I think that having that definitive beginning and end gives me a sense of relief where I know that there's something to look for. It's not to look forward to, but there's certain like a journey, a destination point where I'm like, okay, once I get there, I'm done. I'm not feeling like I'm abandoning the project in midway through it. Somehow I've gotten to my point and I've said my piece and a part of me was, it was either, it was honestly between like something like that. I wanted the set date that was like somewhat constrained by time and geography uh, was, for example, like the history of late antiquity, which, you know, it's a mess in time period, but started from like third century and end with like the, uh, the arrival of Islam in the, in Europe and in North Africa. Um, but I think that, I think that having that set point gives me a sense of structure and, uh, and confidence to be like, okay, I will eventually get to the end. It's not like, it's going to feel like it's far away. I don't want to feel like I'm abandoning my project. And it's also a nice bookend. It's something, there's something really charming about, you know, you start from the beginning of the story and then once it closes, there's a sense of finality to it. And I think it's very satisfying to get through that. Like with Mike Duncan going from the history of the prehistory of Rome until 476, when the empire ends. There was a, there's something, there's something very satisfying, even especially to lay people about having like a storybook ending, we'll call it. And I think that's what I ultimately want to do. But even though I'm going to obviously elaborate on, well, technically, but I like to have that sort of perspective or perception of a storybook ending at the very minimum. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I'm just noticing. Uh, so I, I pulled up a, a picture of your podcast logo. So I see it has the Greek. Did you learn any of the ancient languages to be able to podcast or uh, do you just have like that very rudimentary enough to know what this means or this is to get by? I do know a lot. I knew, I don't know um, as much as I would like to, or as much as I should, or especially pronunciations. That's kind of like my Achilles heel, we'll call it. But uh, in terms of like, 
you know, in biology, I mean, there's actually, I think they were offering courses now where, you know, you take a rudimentary Latin and Greek to even understand like basic, uh, like, uh, I guess I didn't describe it as uh, just basically root words. And so you understand terminology from, you know, physiology, medical stuff, biology, that sort of thing. But uh, I, I don't know Greek as or or Latin as much as I'd like to. There are certain things that pop up frequently. I can kind of get the general picture. And especially when you deal with like coinage enough where you're like, okay, I understand this means it's a possessive and this is specifically this phrase and expression. And even like reading it, uh, I can sort of understand the intention and the names behind it. Whereas before I'm like, I don't know who the hell Alexandros is, but where is Alexander? <laughs> um, but yeah, I think uh, that's something I would, that, that is one of those guilty things where I'm thinking like, well, eventually if I, you know, comparing that to classics and like classic students who learn languages where they get a better understanding. Cause I think that taking like, like I like to incorporate primary sources as much as I can, but they're so up to interpretation that I feel almost inadequate where I'm like, well, I'm kind of getting the second hand of a second hand and I'm relying on this translation to kind of get the general gist. And I, so I try to always add a caveat in like notes or something saying, well, this is just from the translation I'm reading. I'm not, I'm not an expert in these things. And uh, I, I appreciate when people are like, you know, oh, you know so much. It's like, well, I read a lot and that's about the extent of it. So I'm well learned, but not necessarily intelligent. So there's a little bit of a difference. Oh, I think that's fine. I mean, hey, complete A for effort though, uh, because these, these ancient languages are a bear like there's, there's no two ways about it um and that's actually one of the the sort of barriers um and and uh to, to entry really into classics which is something that i harp on all the time which is it's one thing to be an undergrad but then if you want to move up in any meaningful way not only do you need both ancient languages but then you're gonna need to pick up french and german mm-hmm to be able to read those books and do the work. And it's just, it's, to me, it's insane. I'm, I'm like, so you're going to demand of people that they learn four extra languages in addition to needing English to then be able to even sort of move up in this world. And so that just makes it so hard. Do you have any recollection? Did they teach Latin either in high school or even when you got to college, were they offering Greek and Latin and did you even know that that was a thing at the time my high school uh we we I think you know that's an excellent question I think I don't know if they've changed that recently I don't remember if they ever had uh if they did have a Latin class uh, I went to public school but if they had a Latin class it would be under the AP program but I don't remember if they ever did university the university I went to University of Manitoba actually and Winnipeg in general just you know I'm not from Canada but they have an amazing classics. It's like, it's a little nucleus throughout Canada where just all these classes are there. And so they had tons of Greek and Latin courses. They had a really dedicated classics department where tons of courses I could take. And uh, I didn't, I mean, they didn't really put it out in the forefront to your non-average student, like to your average student. Like nobody would just be casually saying like, you know, Hey, you should learn Greek and Latin. It's more of like, you know, they start branching out by offering the more, you know, the, the juicier bitch of ancient history. It's like, you want to learn more about Julius Caesar. You want to learn more about like what life was like in Rome. And when you enter into that field where you're 
you know, like, I mean, classics, classic students do have like a lot of problems where you have them like Greek, Latin, and then you're like, you mentioned the, like the publication languages of like French, German, and sometimes Russian, depending on where exactly you're basing it out of. And it's even worse when you're dealing with, uh, you know, societies and cultures outside of that. So anywhere in the Middle East, you've got to take, you know, uh, Syriac languages, uh, Arabic, uh, Turkic, just it, it does it, it's, it's, as much as it is a barrier to entry, I think almost like getting an appreciation for those languages, it's it's a juggling act because finding appreciation for those languages and being able to immerse yourself in like the actual text of like say a Herodotus, where you're actually like dedicating the time where it, it's it's a weird thing to describe where you're translating it, but you're like indulging, you're in you're immersing yourself in how they write and the stylization where it's so you get so much more nuance than you would if you're just like me, where you're kind of relying on second hands. And so it's a hard balancing act to deal with where. I mean, until we get to the age of like AI technologies that you just like, even if they speak, they write their journals in French, they just publish it or publish it and translate automatically in whatever language. I think, I think it's still going to be a problem in the future and trying to juggle learning like four languages on top of a university program. That's where the problems come in as far as my experience has gone. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I don't, obviously the Canadian education system is so different from anything we have here. And I know that here, unfortunately, in this country, we have a lot of issues with, well, where are these uh, really well-known programs? Where are the bigger programs? Where do you go if you want to get like a really good, well-rounded education where they have kind of bits of, of everything um, just because they can employ so many scholars who kind of range from the prehistoric stuff to the later Roman Empire. Uh, I personally went to the University of Missouri in Columbia and we had a really small department. Our department was maybe, I want to say like 10, if that, I feel like it was less. I don't know why, but uh, it was probably like 10 full faculty members. And so, you know, the, it's like slim picking. So when I first got there, I didn't know that the department existed. No one advertised for it. I definitely was not told about the languages. I had to like discover it myself by sneaking into like a mythology class which I didn't even know we offered until a friend was like hey I'm in a mythology class and I don't want to go alone do you want to come with me so it's just like these unfortunate scenarios where then you're, you're always trying to have to find it yourself uh, and then once you're even in there they don't tell you things so then you're like constantly trying to find out more it's 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 really this weird thing where it's like we won't tell you, but if you ask us, we'll tell you. Is it similar in Canada or did you get the sense that there's a little more care there to if you do find it, then they're just like, here are all the options. You know, that's a good question. And considering that, again, I was not a I was never a humanities student, like as my major. I took my a philosophy as my minor, and that was just because I, I was interested in the subject. Um, and I can't say, you know, I'm not as someone who's not like in that world or never was in that world, we'll call it where I was actually seeing the, like the detailed day-to-day stuff. I was in the interesting classes and I'm like, this is great. And I dealt with amazing professors and, uh, and everything like that. So I guess I couldn't speak to how, like, you know, what is the funding? Like, what is the promotions? Like, of course I would pay attention to it because I was always interested in it. And um, it just depends because I guess, as someone who, because I, I lived in the United States, I'm born and raised here, and I still live here. I went to school in Canada, so it was university experience in Canada was 
it was it, it it's hard to say because as someone, I guess I call it the outside from outside looking in where now, especially things that like I'm on social media and I'm engaged with a lot of classicists and ancient historians who I kind of see their viewpoints on things. And I can't even comment because I'm not a part of that. I don't know if I could actively give like an accurate assessment, but I guess speaking from like kind of a layman's perspective, I feel like my department was not necessarily well promoted, but there was a fair amount of support as far as I could see where they did have a lot of interesting things. Like there was actually quite a bit of fellowships and like public talks for, for, for classicists and U of W and University of Winnipeg also has a large classics department. Now I'm not certain that that's just like the nature of geography and maybe University of Toronto or maybe University of like BC are kind of similar, but I feel like the, where I was at was particularly well supported and when I compare that to like, when I visited the University of Illinois, I didn't really see anything of that nature. Like clearly schools are sometimes just built for specific departments. And even our school was more of like, we were well known for physics and we were well known for mathematics. And uh, there was a couple of biology guys out there, but in law students, but some and like the University of Illinois, it's like tons of physicists, engineers and stuff come out of there. So trying to get a school that is tailored to what you needed to be and still is very forthcoming of what that requires, I think there is a challenge to it and you really have to work on it. Whereas like in the United States, you know, the, the emphasis on STEM is kind of like the ideal, like, you know, you got to go, go into your science technology. And I think that's not a really good pattern to follow where it kind of give, it kind of blinds people to like, you know, it's just like, oh, just do these because that's the way it goes. Well, you kind of lose sight of the bigger picture. But again, United States University experience is another beast entirely. And I have my own opinions on that. But <laughs> as someone who never had to deal with that, and I feel immense sympathy for those who had to try to struggle with everything from start to finish. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think it's important. And, and I ask kind of this question even to people who aren't in classics or whether you're classics adjacent or just like not involved at all. I only ask because I, I try to get a sense of how are we as a field and how are programs doing in terms of outreach. So as someone who isn't within the field, it does interest me to know whether you heard about things or not, because then that tells me, hey, your school is just another one which, which is struggling to attract more people, if that makes any sense. It's kind of like if you did know that these classes were being offered and mm -hmm. that they had a billion other cool sounding ones, then that then that would be great because then I'd say they're doing something right because you're not in classics, but you know that there's all these mythology courses which may whether you have room to take them in your schedule or not, that's a different question, but it's like knowing they're there. And then had you had wanted to take them, you would have been able to, but it just sounds like, again, it's just another smaller program. That's like not doing a very good job of telling students outside the field, Hey, we exist. We have these classes, please come take them. Even if you're not going to get the major, you might benefit from a background somehow in what you're doing. And actually though, as someone who isn't in classics, do you feel though that knowing what you do now, knowing a bunch about history and some of the things that were done in the past, has that helped you in your current life career, like pursuits that are not classically focused and kind of, it's like a two-parter. Basically, if you had known about this and taken more classes when you were in college, would that have helped you get to where you are now? 
I think with the, with any sort of like extracurricular learning, we'll call it where I'm like, like classics was always like my side, like passion for life where I've always had a, had a fascination for it and being able to delve myself into it was always like more out of like personal enjoyment and like just curiosity about things. And in, in terms of like, it, it, if there was any sort of tangible benefits, I feel like uh, just being like, I guess we'll call it like the general humanities versus your STEM perspectives. I'm just going to very general, I'm going to very uh, callously generalize things. When you're writing back and forth where you have these different styles where if you're writing in, in the stems from experience it's very much analytical in the sense of uh you know just it's technicalities and technicals whereas with humanities applying more critical thinking was always something i appreciated more and like i guess also i took a lot more philosophy classes than i did classics courses and that was something that always kept my skills up i mean i'm not going to say that I'm very particularly like uh, well-versed in philosophy or even like uh, specialized thinking, but just being able to consider outside perspectives and consider like how things should be done. And I, I'm stubborn by nature. And I think this was the be tangible benefit for me. We're just trying to like back up a little bit and say, you know, oh, let's try doing something like this. And I think that, I think what's funny is I, I, I took my MBA, which is right after I got out of undergrad. And I always have this kind of like sarcastic view on how outsiders reinterpret classics or ancient history. Like there's always the joke that like your average, like your business, like an MBA graduate would read like Marcus Aurelius's meditations and Sun Tzu's art of war. And it's like, well, can you really apply those to a business mindset? Like, I, I don't think I can get like the surface level. It looks good on a resume. It's like, yes, I uh, read uh, this, this, to this topic and I really enjoyed it. And I apply it to when I'm, uh, when I'm conducting my business, it's like, no, you gotta. And that's the problem. It's where, do you find the fault of these like surface levels with classics itself? Or do you find that with just people who misinterpret it? Um, I feel like, expanding that up just gives me a better perspective of the wider world where I'm not so tied to a particular belief or system or structure where it's like, I don't particularly identify myself with any sort of like a philosoph philosophical mindset. Whereas I think people who are just generally cursory knowledge, they read one book. It's like, yeah, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm stoic, you know, just, <laughs> which drives me up the wall. It's like, okay, well, have you ever read anything else? No. Well, here, there's a problem. But I think uh, classic, like seeing what classics do, and I find that with people like Blayman, I don't ever experience where it's like people are elitist to me. I've never actually had that. And they've been pretty generous where they're like, no, they're really open when, and they're really passionate about what they want to do. Like I asked them, so, you know, could you provide more information to this or could you send me a copy of your work? And they're just so generous with what they're trying to do, especially for someone like me who is not involved in that world. And I always appreciate where classic students are even like, yeah, I am writing dissertations on this, like far more advanced things than whatever my little rinky ding show was doing. It's like, yeah, I really love your work. And there's something sort of so genuine and like really makes me like appreciate it. But I don't know if this sounds like a tan, like a, like a, a little bit of a weird digression, but I just think that just my experience with them has just been nothing but positive and supportive over the years. And but it, I guess it's just trying to find that tangible line where these benefits lie. It, it's, it's hard to say. I just feel like a lot of people, I wouldn't, I don't want to say misappropriate, but I think they get the surface level understanding and then they act like experts when they get that, just when they're coming in from the outside. That's from my experience. And I'm a bit of a, I'm a bit of a, uh, a bit of a cynic, not philosophically, but just in general negative personality type. So that's just my, uh, that's just my perspective on it. And it's a very limited one, but as far as I've seen, that's how I view it.
Yeah, I mean, I don't there's there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, I, I see that uh, in a lot of people, unfortunately, but I don't know. I it's something I spend a lot of my time pondering um, and I talk about quite a bit, which is we are in this age where STEM is so valued, where people are actively telling people, no, you should go do something useful with your life something that will help you get a job, have a good career, make a lot of money, uh, since that's, you know, what um, that's all people seem to think about these days. So I've, I've definitely encountered a lot of people who are very happy to sit here and say, OK, well, I read a little bit about this and that's fine. That's all I need to know. I'm good. And then I know a bunch of other people. I have friends, quite a, quite a few who have been in STEM fields who were like, wow, yeah, I went through school and they taught me how to do these very technical things and I can do math and science really well and I'm going to get that nice paying job right out of college. But also I wish that I had felt a little more well-rounded or I've had people tell me that they wish that they had some kind of knowledge or information that would come from taking some humanities courses that would just sort of help them figure out problems. So yeah, it's in, so I'm, I'm just fascinated by this idea that we tell people actively just like don't do humanities things in school, just take them on as hobbies, whatever, and then go into your career and then go back to it instead of pr- promoting like a more holistic approach to it in terms of, well, I think you should go into STEM because we absolutely need people to do STEM things. But I think all STEM majors should have to take some kind of history classes so they get just a more well-rounded approach to what they're doing. I mean, I can think of a billion careers that would benefit from any kind of classes, background, even minimal ones in humanities. As someone in STEM, I mean, can you think of the ways that classics enhances or just helps what you're trying to do or any other of the STEM related fields? I think with, uh, for example, I guess for instance, where um, say, for example, with, that's an excellent question, because I'm not really like, even in even my day to day life, I don't operate in the STEM field anyways. And I mean, I always feel I always feel sympathy where people are like, especially nowadays, where I mean, the United States, with its university system, how expensive it is. I understand the concern of why they're so like pushy about like get into this like high level position. Every, I mean, every buddy I knew that was like, yeah, I'm going to be a doctor, or I'm going to be a physicist, or I'm going to be an engineer, and about 85% of them did not. And that's not because they're bad students. It's because they just find like, this is not for them and they get kind of pushed into this. So they should make this decision at 18. Whereas you probably really wouldn't know until like you're maybe 20 when you've kind of gone through a few years. And that's somebody who that's, I've gone through the same experience where I wanted to be this. And I found I didn't love it as much. Um, Where I guess coming back to that original point though, I think with STEM, for instance, like when I, when I guess it's the use of source work. Now, when you have, uh, say, if I'm just reading biology papers, you're kind of just reading it straight faced and you're just kind of taking it as it is where, uh, you know, of course, data can be reapplied and applied. Like I know the stories of like, I, there's, a, there's this kind of this funny story where uh, two uh, wor- nematode experts violently disagreed about the molecular weight of like the nematode itself. And they would like such petty little insults and like, you know, reading newspapers when they would give like talks in public, they just actively make a scene. So STEM is like not devoid of any like weird bickering and 
politics that you find in any university thing. But I, I'm kind of derailing on that. What I mean is with the uh, with the source work, for example, you know, what classes works with, I'll go back to a Herodotus. Now it's finding appreciation of that source and finding the different ways to interpret it to such a degree that it's actually amazing to see how so many people view it. Whereas you read like uh, the same, like you, you find data, it's very technical and it's, you know, it's like the data is there or not. And you have much more to work with in a broader perspective. And so when I think when you find yourself devoid of those tools of critical thinking or analysis or like what the historian has to employ, especially ancient historians where you're so devoid of any sort of like actual tangible information beyond, you know, like there's a, like the famous metaphor of like the drunk person looking for his keys under the lamppost because that's where the most light is. I think that really implies and it requires a lot more of like lateral thinking and di like a different way of approaching it versus just data. And I think STEM kind of suffers from that where you're very much like it ha it's very much by the books and there's not really as much room for creativity or an expression of creativity. It's we're very standardized and rigorous. And I think there is benefits to that. But I think the humanities in question just it allows for that more flexible thinking and uh, approaching things differently than how they normally are. And again, I'm, I just went through my undergrad as a STEM student and I was in biology, which is a little bit softer than, even though it's, it's a harder science than, than like, uh, let me rephrase that. I don't want to insult my uh, friends going on here. <laughs> it's a softer science in the sense of uh, it's not, a, I mean, a lot of it, there's incorporates uh, behavioral incorporates, it does incorporate mathematics and the like, but it's just the way you approach things that I find that humanities allows you to improve on. And I just, it, it's sorry as if it sounds like rambling, but I feel like just there's this almost intangible, tangible benefit of being able to consider outside thinking and perspectives and incorporate that in how you function and you behave where it gives you more tools to work with. And there's never a problem when being given more tools to work with versus like just hyper-specializing in one thing. And then when you find that particular tool is not useful, where do you go from there? And I think that that's what a, a more holistic or well-rounded education kind of gives is it gives you more ways to approach things and how to be a better problem solver overall. Even if you're not like looking to specialize, I'm looking to uh, study specifically, uh, you know, uh, Plutarch's lives or the or philosophy behind, uh, you know, uh, Epictetus. It's just being able to experience it and being able to come at it with a different perspective. For sure. Yeah. I mean, I think there's so much truth in that. I, I, I get some version of that every time I talk to someone, which is great. So I just love being able to now say, hey, I have someone who was in a STEM field, be able to tangibly back that up. And it's it doesn't just sound like, oh, yet another classicist or ancient historian just trying to make a case for themselves that they're they're very important. So, yeah, it's it's great to, to be able to have uh, your perspective on that just as someone who was not in the field. So it's always nice to have those voices around. And so turning a little bit to now that you're firmly in this world, you've been podcasting, I think you've said for like three years now. Yeah, three years uh, this upcoming April and uh, or I guess it'd be like the last week of April, but it's like how time flies. Who knows? I was thinking when I first started, I'm like, oh, God, let's see if those last like three months. And then here we are three years later and I'm no better than I was before. <laughs> well, marginally better. I'll give myself a little bit more credit than that. You have to have been doing something right to last this long. I, I, I think I follow a similar 
schedule as your show because uh, we release about twice a month as well. So I was like, you know, if I do things right or if 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 I can follow someone who successfully carved out a, a spot, then then I'll I'll feel good if I'm sitting where you are in, in about three years, hopefully. So now that you've been podcasting and involved really in learning more about the classical world and just um, engaging with people in the fields. Does it bother you now when you watch things that are not historically accurate, any sort of TV shows or read things in books? Or are you not to the point where most of us are kind of just going around pissing people off because we're being so pedantic about everything? Just, oh, that's not right. This is off. This is terrible. I get those moments here and there where it's more out of just like uh, it's me pointing at the screen, but like I'm talking about like, for example, my buddy and I were watching Gladiator last year. And I'm like, hey, wait a minute. That's a Persian symbol. That doesn't belong here. And it's more just like out of excitement, like I can recognize it. I, I kind of just shut my brain off. And like, I hate using that expression, but I literally just turn my brain off and just try to enjoy it for what it is. Because like there are problems like when you have the representation of the ancient world in in media where I would like to certainly see something that's really realistic or not maybe realistic, but Barry has, has a very strong degree of authenticity to it where you're never going to get anything 100% right. I mean, you just can't. I mean, we just know so little. I mean, it's a lot of extrapolations. And uh, given the nature of Hollywood and budget cuts, you got to you gotta reuse those Roman costumes every year, uh, you know. But for example, like when we had, I guess we, I, I've talked about this a couple of times on my show. And uh, the, one of the examples I like to bring up is uh, either like HBO's Rome or the more, I guess, the more disastrous Oliver Stone's Alexander film, which yeah, I could just, you know, for those who aren't listening, she just grimaced. <laughs> um, I, I, there's a, there are a lot of problems with that film, uh, but there was a dedication and attempt to capture the authenticity of the ancient world that I don't think has been really matched by any movie. Well, certainly not matched the movie in the last 20 years, but in the last however long that cinema has gone around. And video games are kind of making this attempt where it's more believable, where they're not as limited by scale and scope. Like, you know, I know that uh, the recent Assassin's Creed games uh, like Origins Odyssey have been implementing features to make it more, uh, maybe not completely authentic, but they've been using tools to try to give like a sightseeing tour of what ancient Greece ought to look like or what ancient or Hellenistic Egypt ought to look like. And I feel like there's a certain level of like, I think people appreciate it more where it's like, oh, wow, that's really cool. Like, so this is how it should, well, it should more be like, as opposed to our generic perspective of like, you know, you go from like the scale of like a 300 to like that recent, there was that, I mean, it did have problems, but there was that recent uh, Netflix miniseries called Barbarians where the Romans actually speak latin i don't know how well they speak it but they do speak latin and that's a huge step and i think it gives people like more of appreciation of like wow you know this is like a different angle where i mean you can only go so many years with seeing the same version of like a cleopatra or a julius caesar without kind of getting bored of it and i'm waiting for the day where they kind of expand more into the hellenistic period outside of the very end of it um but no it doesn't really bother me and i do i do get annoyed here and there but that's just more like me being pedantic or it's like well it really should be like this it, i get i I've, I've, I've had these arguments on the internet with like regular tv shows like i just don't want to deal with it all the time I've, I've learned to get less upset about things and i like to make fun of it or I like to discuss things like how they should be as to way to kind of like teach people but i don't like just sitting at a screen going like this is wrong or this is stupid because it's a movie what are you gonna do 
Yeah, I definitely have to battle that because uh, the common reaction from a lot of my friends at this point is don't ruin this one for me, please. Just let me watch it. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm, I'm sorry. OK, I'll, I'll keep I'll keep my criticisms to the bare minimum. Um, I, I think by now, most of my friends do not want to watch the Brad Pitt Troy with me because they know I'm just I that one. I'm just like, I can't keep my opinions to myself. I mean, I can I can keep it together for maybe the first 10 minutes. And then it's like when you start to get to the meat of it, when you, when they first introduce Sparta, the first shot you see is water and, and like a ship and, and a harbor. And I'm like this is not Sparta. Sparta is completely landlocked. Why would you do that? And then I diatribe for like 20 minutes and they're like, I'm, I'm missing half the movie. Can you just shut up now? And I'm like, okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, so that, that often happens to, to a lot of us. So I think it's good that you have that perspective to be able to be like, okay, well, if I point things out, it's more of excitement. It's not just pure criticism to the point where you uh, annoy everyone who wants to watch things with you. And I'm really glad that you you mentioned the Alexander movie because I was actually going to ask about that. So thank you for saving me the time. Uh, I saw that it was it was recently made available on Netflix and I saw it and I put it in my list because I was like, I've seen this a thousand years ago and I don't remember a lot about it, but I'm like, I, I, I want to look at it with new eyes. But I'm, I, I do remember certain things uh, about it. But yeah, I think there is definitely an appetite for things that are both entertaining, but also can still be educational. And you mentioned the Assassin's Creed games, and it's it's interesting. I uh, Are you aware of Archeo Gaming, what that is? It's a, it's a new subfield. You know, I've heard a bit about it where I've been exposed to like the, uh, the, the tweet verse of it. Um, but I know that there's been recent things where like um, a couple, there are a lot of channels that have carved themselves a little niches by like going through video games and specifically talking about the way they're perceived in history. Um, and especially like uh, Assassin's Creed was a good one where they'll just, you know, use it or, um, or they use like Total War, for instance, to like illustrate oh this is how like you know they use it for documentary purposes and i'm friends with one of the guys who's made something like that and i can see why because it's a way to be visually eye grabbing without like for me it's there's a certain cap of like what people would appreciate me it's like i talk about all these spectacles and things but it's like i'm not really visualizing it so i'm I'm really curious to see what they're doing for video games and how they're going to kind of progress further with that and i think there is plenty of uh, opportunity to kind of build on top of that where you have a you do have an audience for it especially that's you know gaming is kind of this more interactive medium which grabs more attention and being able to combine like this more authentic we'll call it authentic perspective or approach to it and i think there is a lot of uh a lot of things going for it now of course there's a difference between like authenticity and like uh historical accuracy when it comes to like this is how the general thing it feels like versus like the t- nitty gritty details because if you did that then you would really wouldn't have uh that much excitement relatively speaking yeah well i i mentioned it only because i think that that being a field in and of itself and and having scholars really take an interest in analyzing the synthetic world of video games and going through and saying, hey, I think this was well done. I think this could be better. I think this could be a great learning tool, very engaging. I think it's great that there's so much good reception. And I think that just speaks to the fact that people are very eager for things that are accurate and that can also just be kind of fun, right? I mean, 
I don't think I turn to video games to be like, yeah, I'm going to just like sit here at this video game and, and learn all about this period of history. Obviously, you have to take creative license, but the fact that there is appetite there is so nice. It's so wonderful. And I, I'd imagine that you would find particular interest in origins just because it's right there at the end of the Hellenistic age, really. Yeah, I'd say for me, I'm definitely more of an Odyssey player just because that's 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 more where I'm situated in history, very much a, a fifth century Athens kind of person. But um, I'd love to see more things like that. I'd love to see more things like that that involve language, uh, especially language, just because we don't have anything that really simulates uh, the environment where you can just be around the ancient languages that are sort of dead at this point. But I think, you know, that also requires massive buy-in from then game developers and people who we still have to get on board uh, and, and convince that, uh, hey, yes, keep doing this, but also try working with us and, and um, making it making it a little better. But I don't know. I, I think it's, it's definitely improving um, for sure, for sure. So... One thing that I did want to kind of touch on is the Hellenistic age, as as you just mentioned, does not do much outside of the end. I mean, it, it's just so popular. Cleopatra, Julius Caesar, all the um, all the famous figures that we hear about, read about, see things about. If you could pick one period within the Hellenic, Hellenistic age that you would love to see anything done in, what would that be? I have, um, I guess the easiest one, if we're speaking in terms of like the creation of like media, I've always tried looking for a, uh, I think you couldn't do another. I mean, there, there's reports of Netflix doing another Alexander series. I think we've kind of trodden that ground. I think it's, we're good on Alexander. Let's move to the period of Alexander's successors. I think there is a lot of opportunity there to you. I mean, I think that's a period where you can actually have, I mean, again, I hate using this like analogy, but it's like a game of Thrones of the ancient world. Um, but it is where you have these colorful characters and personalities. And it's so uh, like this politics, intrigue, warfare, and it's like such an intensive cycle where it runs 40 years and you have all these personalities going through it you know there's, there's a duplicity intrigue um characters you can kind of root for underdogs um natural bad guys we'll call them well, quote unquote bad guys where everybody's pretty terrible in this time period um and i think there is a lot of opportunity for that now the question is like what can you how can you do these kind of things i don't think a movie can really succeed at that type of Thing anymore unless you're willing to do multi-movie parts like even olive stone's alexander as much as i love and i would recommend catching the final or the like the the direct like the ultimate edition those are considered the best versions and i actually love those movies it's how do you capture the personality of someone as big as an alexander in like even a three-hour movie where you are skipping over massive important parts of such an integral like intricate story where you have a uh, this like this dynamic where comparing it to like a fictional character where you just like kind of create like a natural beginning middle end this this like creating a tv series i think is something more like a high budget tv series is something that would make more sense in the long-term perspective and i think studios though are generally more risk adverse where they want to stay kind of in general fields where it's like less money and less willing to dedicate it um taking risks like that is starting to become bigger again like netflix like throwing their money at everything that kind of moves just to try to see what works 
I'm, I'm waiting for somebody to try to adapt to the wars of the successors. Like, you know, I already have like the beginning picture. You just have like everybody surrounding the bedroom of Alexander and then all of a sudden like, like you don't see his face, but then you just see like the setup for it. I think that's something that I would love to see um, in terms of anything else. Uh, you'd like to just see some sort of tale like on the Indo-Greeks or the Greco-Bactrians, but we just don't know enough to even like fill in the picture. I just don't know. I think that uh, there have, I think everybody's kind of rooted to Cleopatra and to Julius Caesar. I think more so because we recognize those names because Ju- Rome is infinitely more well-known than anything in the Hellenistic period. And by extension, Cleopatra through Shakespeare and through Plutarch is tied to Rome. Will we see anything of the Hellenistic period um, I, I, I hope so. Eventually we're, I mean, but here we go again, where we have another, like, I think the Gal Gadot Cleopatra movie is coming out. And then there's another Alexander TV series. We're starting at the beginning and ending of it. <laughs> we're never, we're never actually going into the Hellenistic period proper. Yeah, no, I would love to see more done because I will admit that my own education, they did gloss over quite a, a large portion of the Hellenistic age, but that that might just be a byproduct of the fact that since so many of my classes are devoted to classical, uh, the classical world, uh, we just we kind of run out of time over the course of a semester because there's so much earlier to, to pack in. So then I always felt that we were rushing because I remember having uh, quite a few different professors always say, OK, I'm, I, I'm promised we're going to try to get Alexander in there, but uh, sorry, we're going to smush him in there and we're just going to tell you about how he came to power, his early life, and then boom, skip to the, the end and what happens. And then I'm like, OK, well, you're glossing over a lot of history, but I get it because we just were out of time in the semester. Like, but yeah, I would like to see more just because I think there is interest, uh, especially in that time period, even when you're not playing around with the most famous people of the era. Um, so I think I, I'm looking forward to people continuing that discussion of, okay, well, how do we do more of this? How do we do something in media that, kind of strives to really give them airtime to to not just gloss over and say okay here's a here's a two three hour thing and you know this this is it uh i definitely think that it could be a either a multi-season show that's probably the best but i feel like that's also the easy fallback fallback answer right i mean i think anytime we're like talking about large periods of, of time and intricate people with very complicated histories i think the first reaction is always to say just make it into a long tv show (laughs) then people will just watch it over the years and then and then i'm like okay well that's cost that's time that's a lot of things people don't want to deal with and they want to cram into a two-hour movie or whatever so although i will argue and say i was like a lot of people i was really upset with the the later harry potter movies and so when the common excuse was like but no one wants to watch like a four hour movie. And I'm like, well, if you got all the cool details from the books, I would sit down and I would watch a four hour Harry Potter movie. I mean, yeah, sure. A lot of people might not, but I would. Um, And I think that you would find more people who would be willing to, if you could stay more true to the actual source material, but that's a, that's a diatribe for, for another time um, because I could go on and on about very similar things like that. Um, well, I think also, I mean, in terms of like to try to come up with a different solution to that TV series problem, which I 100% I'm guilty of, I think uh, another way is uh, like video games and then graphic, like, you know, even like we'll call it like uh, graphic novels and animation, where I'm also kind of keeping tabs on people where graphic novels are kind of becoming, you know, comics in general, they've the, the general just because I'm, you know, I'm a huge 
Marvel guy in general or comics for years, graphic novels too, um, where there are these like multi long period epics and even, oh, and also like anime and manga where um, there was, I, I forget the name of the author, but he's also wrote other things like Parasite. He worked, he's worked on like a Yuminis of Cardia manga and it's covering years and uh, other things like th- there's a, like there's another one uh, that's like an adaptation of Alexander's life, but from the perspective of the Alexander romance, which would never be made into an actual movie. No one would ever do that. Um, I, her name, artist's name is Riminian Yi, and she's coming out with a webcomic based on it. And it's, I highly recommend it. it looks really cool so far. I'm really eager to see that. And there are plenty of others that are doing similar projects where they're, tr- they have, they're, they're not as limited by creative constraints or budgets I mean, it's you know, there's only so much you can get from a from the from paper, ink and paper, but it's it's better than absolutely nothing. And I think there it's just seeing them trying to take up the mantle of doing things like that to bring life to the ancient world and make it real for people is something I really applaud and I really think it's you know a great thing to see. And I think that's part of it is just bringing the ancient world to life or bringing any other period to life that does it in a way that captures the imagination and attention of people where maybe they don't have the luxury of going to, you know, like as an American, we don't, we don't really have the great ruins of civilization before that where like Europeans, they, they, they step out their front door and they're sometimes bumping into ancient bathhouses or, you know, you have the pyramid. If you're living near the, in Egypt, you can see the pyramids in the distance. It's always there. Whereas someone like us, we just don't have that like tangibility. And for us, it's very much like, we have a concept of what it should be, but to actually be there and to see it in person adds a whole nother layer of it. And I think that's what uh, trying to see, have that appear on media is the closest thing we can get for it for the time being. Well, especially in the age of COVID where traveling isn't really as big of an option anymore. Uh, but I think it's something to be applauded at the very minimum, but I don't know. Studios are studios like to play it safe. You're not really going to have too many ambitious projects as you like. Yeah, for sure. Oh, man, for sure. There's so much there to unpack. Um, but yeah, no, I think that really hits the the nail on the head. Uh, that's something I always think about when I talk to my friends who live in Europe and they're like, well, I understand the fascination. But, you know, honestly, I just walk out my front door and bam, there's something old. Um, I have a friend who lives in Athens. He's like, yeah, I mean, I understand the fascination that you hold for the Acropolis. But he's like, honestly, I walk two feet and he's like, I see it. I just stare up at it and go, mm there's the Acropolis, just another day uh, in life. And I'm like, oh, well, you know, I wish I had that luxury. I don't. I mean, we do have some things, but um, for whatever reason, I think more people are just uh, in love with the idea of, of going out your door and, and seeing either the pyramids or something instead of a bunch of Native American burial mounds, which are super cool if you go look at them. I think I'm also in Illinois, actually. I'm from Chicago, so I, hey. I can go... <laughs> Yeah. So I, so anytime I want, I'm like, I can just head South in the state. And uh, I think we have the Cahokia mounds. Yes. I've never right been down. there personally. Oh, okay. I, well, me neither. Actually, I'm ashamed to say, but in going to Missouri, I have to go right down past uh, St. Louis and make the crossing there on, on the highway. So I, I always see the sign for Cahokia and I always think, man, this, we do have like archeological things here. I just don't take the time to go see them. And I don't know why. But anyway, yeah. So at the end of each podcast episode, I have each guest read Percy Shelley's version of Ozymandias. 
And after that, just if you could, I mean, you know, I don't ask people to do research before just because I'm like, I, I prefer getting the like the hot takes on it. Like what just immediately comes off, you know, what does this poem mean to you? What do you think it means? And is it just a nice poem or does it actually have some deep messages in it? Okay, so no problem. I actually have it right here. So let me uh, let me prepare my reading glasses here. Um, I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on those lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear, my name is Ozymandias, king of kings, Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains, round the decay of that colossal wreck. Boundless and bare, the lone level sands stretch far away. Ooh, that was, uh, that was intense. <laughs> that was almost Shatner-esque. I, I really should have maybe uh, tried not enunciating things. But with that poem, I mean, it's a, I think the Ozymandias poem is like one of the most iconic in terms of like, I think it's, I think it makes an appearance in Watchmen at the end of that. Uh, but from my experience, I guess for, I'm kind of like taking the, the basic understanding, but I'm not that creative when it comes to it. I think it's just, there's almost like that combination of like, there is this like fascination with uh, specifically the Colossi of Memnon. Well, the, we'll call it the Colossi of Memnon. I'm guessing referring to um, where they are impressive, beautiful works, but then at the same time, you know, this clear, clearly this is a script that it's almost decrepit in its form and shape, and the antiquity of mankind just oozes from it. Where so much time has passed, where the people who built it or even were responsible for it are long dead. And clearly at one point it was even more impressive than it is now, but for a completely different purpose. You think uh, these monuments built on the back of uh, war and conquest and how many people lost their lives and how much suffering was inflicted to build these like authoritarian or uh, like these monuments to, they're trying to display power and prominence. And here they are worn away as all things are by time like what is like what is the uh, expression like when the example of like the the roman conqueror on triumph in his chariot with the slave in his ear whispering you know glory is fleeting or you are only but a man i think there is that kind of broader level perspective of history history where where we do tend to lionize it and i think that's a, that's a problem as much as I like to, I love to be engaged with it. We lionize history, but we don't understand the broader perspective of things. And we have to understand that these are, they, they are, they carry a sense of power and like, I would almost say mystical properties, like as someone who like finds like these kind of things like beautiful or uh, even like there's, it's, it's a hard to describe thing when you put your hand on the stone of like Hagia Sophia, then you feel the history emanating from it. Whereas if I put a building on like, you know, from Chicago, from the 1800s, I don't quite get that same feeling. But um, when you when you look upon a ruin and you think how like just the antiquity of man and how ultimately it just is so transient in our experiences. I'm using words that don't have much meaning. It, it, it just that's I think that's I think that's what Shelley is trying to elucidate where we can appreciate things like this but you have to understand there there's like a certain level of like you can't there's not you can't lionize the past too much you have to understand what it, it what its context and what it meant to people at the time and what it means to people nowadays and it's not the same thing 
And there is a bit of an irony towards it where you have like this like human history of suffering and uh, violence. And that's especially true in ancient history where 95% of all narratives are warfare and conquest and great commanders. And as much as I lionize Alexander, he died a sick man in his bed you know, after waging a conquest lasting decade over a decade and caused untold misery to places he visited, it's taking that step back and just understanding it. And I think that's what my general surface level view of the poem is. Yeah, I think that's great. I mean, you you captured a, a lot of the heart of it. And what I'll just add for people who are unfamiliar with the poem, which I often do, is if you've never seen or heard of this poem, uh, Ozymandias is just the Greek version of uh, the Pharaoh Ramesses II's throne name. So this was based off of a statue of Ramesses II that was um, going to be transported from Egypt to the British Museum in 1818 when Shelley wrote it. And he was just enamored, I think would be the word, with with this romanticized idea of of Egypt, but also the way that I read into this is also it is quite a statement on on the ephemeral nature of power, all power, uh, but also political power. Right. I mean, he was king. He thought his empire would last forever. And the fact is, today, his vast empire, which was the greatest of all time back then, is gone and we would not know about it or the king himself, if it were not for this artisan who created this work for him. Um, And it's just a a sad, broken statue. So kind of with that in mind on how it's just a a statement that power is fleeting and unless you are kind of a good person and do things to be remembered are not just terrible. Um, Yeah, you're just not going to be remembered. You're going to be lost to time. The the last question that I always ask every guest, because it's just become my favorite question to ask because of the wide variety of answers I get is, is there anything today that you would call a modern Ozymandias? Is there a modern Ozymandias? In terms of, I couldn't say personality wise, I could name a specific individual or even like a concept. I think trying to, I think with, I think humankind and our current, the way we are, we're very much on growth and bigger and better. And like just the way that we have, we view the world as now it's like this interconnected web of, you know, like where we're, we have the opportunity to expand outwards and technology, like technology in the world is not like always an upward trend where it's a fear of, you know, we are not, we can't always count on the fact we will always be like this. We always have to have like contingency plans, like just to the state of the planet itself, like, you know, being a bio guy, I'm kind of like concerned about climate issues and uh, and in general, the human experience of what we will do with our world once we can't, we can't just keep building monuments as a man's, a, a testament to man's or humankind's arrogance, we'll call it. Uh, it's just trying to, being able to step back and view ourselves as part of a wider picture versus like viewing as we are the apex of everything and we are the focal point which is not how it should work. We need to understand that we are part of a larger picture and trying to view, just build and build and build, or not, I'm not even, it's not even a deforestation thing. It's not even a uh, like you know, use of natural resources. It's that expectation that we're always going to be the same way and we don't have, we can't change our trajectory. 
and it's, it's always going to be a good trajectory. How about that? And we have to step back and realize that not everything is going to, we can't do the same thing over and over again and not expect repercussions. And I think that um, with the Ozymandias analogy, which is, I'm trying to tie it back into the, the glorification of what we're doing and the, you know, the, the concepts like, you know, bigger is better that ever increasing, you know, is, what does Chomsky call it? The ideology of the cancer cell. I think that it, there, there's a certain point we have to step back and kind of an analyze what do we value as a, as a people, as an, as a civilization, as an entire like species, what are our values lie and how we ought to proceed forward, or at least what adjustments can we make to try to improve our standing? Even if they're not radical, they are steps in a, maybe a more better or different direction. Whereas the Ozymandias always to me is just that static stone unchanging and eventually is still worn away by time and the inevitability of life. It's just trying to become more flexible and dealing with things like that, which is very mellow, yeah. but uh, <laughs> yeah. um, I'm not, I'm not like that in person, but that's just what my perspective is on in, in the present at the very minimum. Yeah. It's a, it's a snapshot in time essentially, which is awesome because I, I do love I, I, yeah, I love these quick, quick takes on it. So, and the answers are always so different, which I, which I really appreciate because it, it brings something unique. I think it shows off a little bit about everyone's personality. Um, yeah, I want to thank you once again for joining me on the podcast today. It has been such a pleasure being able to talk to you about just podcasting things, history, a little bit about STEM, a little bit about pop culture, all the, all the things. Yeah, it's, it's been a real pleasure. No, I mean, thank you so much for having me on just having the opportunity where people are reaching out and I feel like that my work is making somewhat of a difference, even if I'm not like, you know, I'm, as someone not in the field, just having this general attitude from the classics community where it's so supportive and so appreciative of even like little things I try to do to maybe expand the opportunities is just it is really wonderful. And I do appreciate you for inviting me on. It's been really, really fun. Trireme Transit is now departing ancient office hours. Next stop is Present Ponderings. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command Tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things. The hand that mocked them, and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. 